You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and uh, I have the privilege of being able to uh, talk to you about Jesus today. Um, I get to show you who he is, uh, show you how kind and wonderful and gentle and compassionate and strong and authoritative as he truly is. And we're going to do so through this passage before us in Mark chapter 6. If you haven't gotten your uh, Mark journal, we've got some on the back table um, on that side of the room, and it's a copy of Mark with some note-taking pages on the opposing pages all the way throughout the journal. And so please grab one of those. They're free for you. And get a rubber band uh, to keep it together. Um, That is also free for you, though it's potentially just as valuable as the journal. Um, But uh, we're going to be in week 24 in our study through the Gospel of Mark, a series that we've entitled Messiah, Seeing and Believing and Following the Messiah. Many people have watched Jesus perform many miracles and do some magnificent things. Uh, Many people at this point in his life and ministry have heard him say some pretty uh, radical things, um, preaching about the coming of his kingdom um, and to turn from their way of doing life and follow his way of doing life in order to enter this kingdom that he's establishing. Some of those who saw Jesus and heard Jesus, um, they saw him for who he really was and others didn't. Some heard, and they believed, and they saw him, and they followed him. And this is what I want for every one of us. This is what I want for everybody in our city. This should be the desire of every Christian, to see people put their eyes on Jesus Christ, open their ears to who he is, follow him with all that they are, heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and to believe him that he is the Son of God sent to bring us back to the Father of all creation. I want this for us. I I want us to see that more than anything else. I want to show you Jesus today. Well, in context, just prior to this passage, um, Jesus, I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago, he sent his disciples out as apostles, as sent ones, um, sent out on a particular mission where they would um, heal the sick and and free free those who were... um, oppressed by demons, tormented by demons. And they do this um, under his authority and through his power, not their own. Um, And I know in our text, as we've been working our way through it, um, it might seem that this is like several weeks in the life of Jesus and the disciples. Uh, But this is actually just in a a few hours. This is just in a a couple days. It's It's not a long period of time that all of this begins to happen. Jesus sends his men out on mission, and they obey him. And word spreads quickly, and rumors begin to pop up all over the the Middle East. Some believe it's Elijah, come back after 900 years. Others believe it's some of the old prophets raised up and, and revisiting God's people. And then there's a rumor that it's John the Baptist back from the dead, and that's kind of how Rome was reconciling things. But Regardless, things are heating up around Jesus. Word is getting out and about and spreading. People are being changed. Uh, People are um, regurgitating and and rewording, rephrasing what they've learned from Jesus and his message to others. Uh, Rome begins to get a little scared over these growing and swelling crowds as they take interest 
and this Jesus guy. He's getting to the point where he's unignorable. And so really, from this point forward, there's a subtle shift in, in the life and mission of Jesus here, here on his earthly ministry. From this point forward, it's, it's, it becomes a little different. The, the religious, they're, they're growing jealous of his influence. They're, they're growing jealous of his power, the way that he has with, with the people, um, the way that he teaches with such authoritative tenderness. It's really different. They can't put their finger on it, but they don't like it. The political forces, they're, they're growing envious of his power uh, and his following. And so there's this tension that builds, and it culminates all the way to the cross. But part of why this influence spreads the way that it does is not just because of Jesus. It's because other people, like the disciples, are doing things like Jesus. Remember, he sent his 12 out, 12 very regular, ordinary guys, not really that good at being religious. Far from being religious elite like Pharisees or Sadducees. And they're doing miracles. Ordinary people. And this is where we're going to land in our text today. Look at verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. So the apostles, these disciples who were sent, returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and all that they had taught. And he said to them, come away just by yourselves to a desolate place, and let's rest for a while. Parentheses sort of here in the text, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Okay, great. But man, what a beautiful scene this is. Look at verse 30. It's an amazing moment. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. These young men, they're sharing with Jesus, telling Jesus about how his power and authority played out in their lives. And Jesus sits back, and he's listening to these guys share what happened. He's coaching them along the way. He's encouraging them. He's asking them questions, even though he knows the answers. They ask him questions. He's smiling. He's laughing about what they're saying. Such a sweet time. I mean, that, is, that verse 30 is just such a gracious moment that did not have to happen. And of all the things not recorded that were special, this tells you that since this was recorded by our friend Mark, it was special. And as Peter perhaps referenced it to Mark and Mark wrote it, Peter was remembering just how special that dialogue was when they came back from their mission trip all around the area, and Jesus just talked with them. I love that. Well, after this kind of follow-up review, this grace-filled encouragement session, Jesus discreetly takes them over to a desolate place. And in Matthew and Luke, we learn that this is Bethsaida, a small fishing town where some of the disciples were from, up on a ridge. And his disciples, as they, as they had scattered and they began healing and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the news of Jesus continued to spread and it's the message of his kingdom where the crippled, the slow, the needy, and the poor, the orphan, and the diseased, the dismissed and overlooked, the sinner, and the drunkard, the disenfranchised, and tax collectors were welcomed in this kingdom. And they got to tell everybody that news. So by this time, he's got the largest following yet. Because as these disciples were out performing miracles, people would be following them back to Jesus, the source of their power to do these very miracles. 
So Jesus withdraws, most likely attempting to sort of like avoid the limelight of the moment, but he's tired, he's exhausted, he's needing rest, and so are the disciples, but the crowd, they don't allow this to happen. Look in verse 33. Now many saw them going in the boat and recognized them. Oh, that's Jesus and the disciples. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It's like, oh, I see them. There they go. Oh, I know where they're going. I see the dock over there. Let's run around. We'll cut them off up there. Verse 34. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. It's like, had gummit. We just tried to get in a boat to get away. <laughs> so he gets ashore and he saw this great crowd. <laughs> and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. You know, sympathy is when your heart goes out to somebody. Empathy is when your heart goes out to somebody as you place yourself in their shoes. Compassion is amped even more than those two because compassion is where your heart goes out to somebody. You place yourself in their shoes and it activates your life to meet a need. Where there's compassion, there's always action. Jesus has sympathy and doesn't always take action. His heart goes out to somebody and doesn't always take action. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem, right? And it doesn't say that he had immediate action that he took. But anywhere you see in the New Testament, in the four Gospels, where Jesus had compassion, you will always see something performed for the good of them. Compassion without action is mere sympathy. He has compassion on them. It didn't take long for the growing crowds to figure out where Jesus and the disciples were going. And so they begin to pursue. And Jesus sees them coming, running after him, and he welcomed them. And many, follow, many were following because they were sick. Many were following because he's become sort of a celebrity at this point. He's just worth following. Others wanted to see his tricks, what he was going to be doing. Perhaps the religious at this point were already trying to see if they could catch him messing up. Some people were following Jesus, like sort of drawing near to him for maybe superficial reasons, um, but some for very significant purposes with sincere need. Some of this crowd are, are, are following him because as they hear him teach, their hearts are warmed towards God, and they begin to burn as they experience hope and optimism. And there's something about him. So people follow him for all sorts of different reasons. And Jesus welcomes them all. This is beautiful. This is so kind. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's not his wrath. It's not his anger. It's not necessarily even his love. It's the kindness and gentleness of Jesus that guides our hearts towards the Lord in repentance. Even though Jesus knows their hearts and perhaps twisted motives of some in why they were following him, Jesus still spends time with them. He listens to them. He heals them. He teaches them. Jesus is such a patient and gracious and compassionate person. There's nobody, friend. There's nobody like Jesus. And the reason he had compassion on them, it says there in verse 34, is because he saw their true need. And the same, it's the same need that you and I both have. We're born with this need. 
He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no leader, no true leader. They were disconnected from their true shepherd. They were sheep without somebody to guide them and care for them and feed them and know them and lead them and protect them. And so Jesus sees them as vulnerable and needy, and they weren't even aware of their true need. They weren't aware of their their actual situation and the trouble they were in. He knew that they needed God to be their leader, their guide, that they needed the Holy Spirit to comfort them and be with them, and that they needed him to be their shepherd, their, their good shepherd, the great shepherd. As we learn in John 10, 10, Jesus knows that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but he came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And he said that he was the good shepherd. And being the good shepherd, he willingly lays down his life for the sheep, knowing that he's the good shepherd, knowing his own and his own know him just as he knew his father and his father knew him. And he willingly laid down his life for the sheep. But he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, a particular type of shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the one who, like in Isaiah 40, verse 11, will tend his flock like that gentle shepherd, gathering the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The crowd grows. The days grow long. The the needs of the people continue. The pressure builds. Exhaustion sort of accumulates wave upon wave. He's tired. The disciples are tired, and he doesn't click on do not disturb mode. He sees the people, and his heart goes out to them. He's exhausted, yet he still takes a genuine interest in the crowd. Each person, not seeing the forest alone, but seeing the trees, not merely seeing the crowd, but seeing each person, seeing each need, knowing every needy heart, understanding every anxious thought, every troublesome situation. He sees it. He's pushed to the limits, but he has limitless capacity to care for them. And friend, the same is true for you. You are to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and let him, at the time where he sees fit, lift you from your situation and exalt you. But in the meantime, you cast your worries and your anxieties and your trouble on him because he does care for you. Your situation, your broken heart, your fears, your struggles, your burden, your need, he is aware, he cares. And it's not too complex, and you're not too complicated for Jesus. Even here, he welcomes them all. He teaches them all. He cures the sick. He heals the needy. Some needed their sight restored. He took care of that. Others just wanted to be seen by him. He said, hey to me. It's cool. Others needed a hug, and that's it. And he's there for it all. Continuing. The Messiah continues to live a life of mercy and service to the broken and marginalized and needy. This is his kingdom. This is what his kingdom looks like. This is who he was, and this is who he is. If you couldn't get along with Jesus, you could not get along with anybody. The kindest person ever to walk this earth. Well, this goes on for hours. This healing, this listening, this encouraging goes on for hours. Look at verse 35. And it grew late, and his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away. Send them away to, to, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and, and um, buy them something to eat. 
Well, it got late, past supper time. Evening is settling in, and Jesus is healing. He's teaching. He's curing people's diseases. He's preaching. He's encouraging, equipping. He's ministering. He's showing mercy. He's loving. He's holding hands. He's putting an arm around a shoulder. He's hugging person after person, group after group, and it goes on for hours. The crowd continues to grow more and more, but it's getting late, and it's getting dark. And the 12 disciples, they find Jesus. And they sort of ask Jesus to like, look, just dismiss the crowds, wrap things up, like, let's send them away. We're still hungry. Like The whole point of us getting here was so that we could rest and, and get some food. We're still tired, more tired, and we're hungry, more hungry. Like, let's, let's leave these people, have them leave us. Right? And so, so really, it's almost passive-aggressive. It's like, Jesus, you know, we need a break. It's supper time. This is like our out. Like, it's not a bad PR move for you to say, hey, folks, it's time for you to get something to eat. I care for y'all. Go get some food. Uh, otherwise, they're not going to leave. Well, Jesus hears the 12 disciples explaining all this, and he sort of interrupts them. And he says in verse 37, um, yeah, you go get them something to eat. Like, well, are we supposed to go take 200 denarian of bread and, and give it to them? That's two-thirds of your annual income. And it's hard to imagine Jesus being this loaded you know, um, this, that this doesn't seem like how he rolled with his disciples. Um, and he says to them, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not what I'm asking you to do. Um, I'm going to ask you something more ridiculous. Uh, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they went and they found out. They said, we've got five loaves and two fish. No, don't dismiss the crowd. Let's feed him. Jesus is a lot of fun, and he's got a big heart. Do you see his generosity here? You give him something to eat. And the disciples are thinking, well, we've only got five pieces of bread, and we've got two fish. We don't have enough food for all these people. I mean, I guess we could go into town and buy them all supper if you just want to get the tab on this one. And Jesus is like, great idea. This is, guys, you're brilliant. Let's, let's all eat together. That's fantastic. Let's not go into town and spend all that money. Let's do it right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First things first, have everybody sit down in groups of 50. Now, when Jesus tells them to feed the people, he knows that they don't have enough food for this group of people. He knows that the disciples, what they have, before they even know what they have, he knew what they were going to come back with. Five loaves, two fish. It was a common peasant meal for probably two people. That's pathetic. When Jesus sends you to go get food to feed 20,000 people, because it's just 5,000 men, right? not counting the women and the children. So it's easily 15,000, 20,000 people. When he sends you and you show back up with five pieces of bread and a couple of fish, uh, it's almost better just to be like, we couldn't find anything. You know? um, it's like, don't tell him. Don't just say nothing. Like, if you bring, he's going to think you're an idiot if you show up with that stuff. Just tell him. And then Jesus walks around the corner. What you got? He's like, oh, uh, five pieces of bread and two fish. Here's how it plays out. Verse 39, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. So not only were the men present, like I said, there were others that were present. This would be like a sold-out Preds game or concert at Bridgestone. And he says, have them sit down in groups of 50. Now notice this, that even if they didn't have faith that they could feed them all, the disciples, they still obey Jesus and do what he says to do. They didn't say, 
my thought was when I was placing myself in the shoes of the disciples, I'd be like, this is dumb. Like, this is stupid. It's not enough food. Like, I even know that we can't feed. The, no one gets even a crumb if we divide it up into the tiniest crumbs. Like, nobody's going to be happy about this. This is impossible. They don't say that. Friend, it doesn't have to make sense to do what God is telling you to do. You just do it. That's part of what faith is about. Don't follow Jesus and obey God based on what you can bring to the table, your skills, your background, your talent, your resources, and what makes sense. You follow Jesus and you obey the God of the Bible based on God already knowing your limitations and lack of resources better than you ever will. And you obey him as he tells you to set the table and put the people in groups of 50. You're going to eat. You just obey. And this is what the disciples do. And don't overlook the fact that Jesus... His poise, his confidence, and his authority is astounding. When there's this many hungry people organizing this sort of moment, it takes quite an individual to do this without a mob forming. But people listen, the disciples listen. In 41, the, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the people, to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. He blesses the food. He prays over it. His power is what multiplies it. Like the old song goes, a little is a lot when God is in it. And Jesus thanks God for the food. And he blesses the meal. He prays publicly enough so that they took note of it and wrote about it so that we could learn about it later. Why did he pray? Jesus understood the Father's authority and power. And he knew that he was with him in this authority and power. He was never acting alone. And Jesus wanted everyone else to know where this power was coming from. He was always glorifying his father. He was always making much of the father. That was the point of all his miracles, is to lift their eyes above the healing of the leper to the source of the power so that they'd be in awe of who God is, right? Not just his tricks. Friend, if Jesus submitted to God... All things, even like this, so should we. And if he prayed to God, so should we. And if he was all about glorifying God, so should we. And by the way, when you pray over your food, as Christians are to do, we're acknowledging that, that this food is a gift from God to us. It is a grace that we get to eat. We're also thanking God for caring for us in this way, for his provision. And we're asking God to bless it and multiply it, stretching it to feed all who are present and care for us even in our next meal that we'll have in a few hours later. It's a form of dependence. And then we're also asking him to provide for, in similar ways for those who were in need. So as you pray over your meals, it's grace, it's provision, it's dependence, and it's a prayer for other people who aren't experiencing the feast of friendship and food that you are. Well, after giving thanks and blessing the meal, he, he starts the, the dinner by breaking the loaves, and he gives them to the disciples, and the disciples give them to the crowd. Again, he's using the disciples to be focused about others. They don't appear to eat first, but they're used by Jesus to serve others first. And I love that Jesus used the disciples to accomplish this. He didn't have to. Just as he miraculously did this thing, he could just drop it in their laps. It could just appear. I mean, this whole episode was for the disciples to grow in their faith and trust in Jesus. And learn that he's got the power to do anything. And to work alongside him as he does his work. It's beautiful. 
Verse 42, this is really the gospel in a verse. They all ate and were satisfied. Verse 43, they, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Perhaps for each disciple to have a basket of food. I mean, what was like, man, all we got is like a little bit of bread and some tiny little fish. And now it's like, Jesus, my back's hurting. Can you make this a little bit lighter? This is a lot of food. <laughs> it's amazing. And of course, there were 5,000 men that ate. Now think about this. The fish that they ate never swam. Never touched water. The fish that they ate were never caught. The original two were, but not all the fish that were consumed. The barley never grew in a field. It was never prepared. The bread was never baked, left out in the sun to harden. Jesus creates fish and bread like he did creation. Bara ax nihilo, from nothing. He created all this instantly. He creates. It's what he's done from the beginning. Jesus is the Messiah, and he's got the power and authority to create. And Mark consistently, throughout his historical account of Jesus, the Messiah, he wants us to see that Jesus is more than a mere man. He's the Messiah. He's the God-man. Jesus is God. That's what, that's what Mark is trying to get us to see, that he is the one sent by God, from God, for us to bring us back to God. He doesn't want us to miss him. Well, in closing, I want to ask you a couple questions. What limitations do you place on Jesus and on his ability to do miracles in your life and through your story? I mean, as children, what limits do we place on our favorite superheroes? I don't know about the ladies in here, but I can speak for myself and some other guys I knew growing up. Man, we played some really radical games where reality made no difference. My brother and I would get zapped by lasers. We didn't have lasers. And we would fall off this pretend bridge and we would land in a, a den of cobras and nails and glass. Then we'd get blown up by a rocket launcher. My brother would scream, Jeremy, you're dead. I got you. I'm like, no, you didn't. I'm Superman. Like, this doesn't affect me. I'm like, because Superman is awesome. He's not just got a cool belt and some money like Batman. Like, he's actually a hero. <laughs> Don't place limitations on what Jesus can do. He can do anything. And, and what areas of your life are you currently transferring your limitations onto Jesus? Those situations where you're subconsciously thinking, if it's too much for me, it's probably too much for Jesus. Or if it's too much for my closest friend to care about, he probably doesn't care about it either. That's not true. What is it that you're not trusting Jesus with that he can totally handle? What is it? And, and another question is, what is it that you're in the middle of and you're experiencing, you're thinking, Jesus doesn't care about this? My dear suffering friend, he cares more than you and I both know. He cares. Again, 1 Peter 5, 7, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And at the proper time, he may exalt you. That's not up to you. What is up to you is that you cast all your anxieties on him 
and, he, and knowing that he cares for you. And Philippians 4 and 5, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about these things, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard. Not might, maybe. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friend, there's absolutely nothing that Jesus can't handle and handle carefully. And there's nothing that he doesn't care about. Today, the Messiah, Jesus, he cares for you. And he sees the need beneath your need that you're aware of. And he's ready to comfort you in the depths of your pain and your need and your brokenness. Let him in. Let him in. And go to him with what you have, some bread and some fish, and let him be God. He stands ready to help you. He stands ready to comfort you. And he's eager to save you and provide for you regardless of your past, because of your past. Your past is what qualifies you for Jesus to have an interest in you. It's what qualifies you for you to experience the compassion of God. And it's not your past that's the big deal. It's the cross of Christ that's the big deal. And our hope is found in what Jesus did for us in his life, death, and resurrection because it's through his life, death, and resurrection that we can, by faith, be re-identified by God, restored to our maker, the great shepherd of our soul, where you're no longer dead to him because of your sin, and you're no longer not good enough because of your sin. You're no longer orphaned because of our rebellion against him and under his wrath, fearing his judgment. But through faith in Jesus, you're restored back to God through his saving work. And by the power of God the Spirit, you're made alive. You're made good enough, justified, made as righteous as Jesus is. And you're adopted into his family where there's now no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. And that means you are perfectly loved and fully accepted by God. And that is what brings you satisfaction. That is what you're looking for. My friend, believe this. Believe these things. And regardless of who you are, regardless of what you're facing, regardless of this past week or the week ahead of you, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what others have done to you, Jesus can. There are no limits. You give him what you have. You give him your life. You give him all that you have. And don't just say it's only a couple of fish and some bread. Don't say that. Don't look at merely what you have. Be honest with what you have. And give him what you have. And you trust him. He's able to do it. It's simple faith in Jesus. You trust him. He will develop your faith along the way. You go in with all that you have. And don't think, well, I'm a nobody. I don't have a spectacular and stunning testimony. God will never use my story to change anybody. It might just be a couple of fish, but your story could change 20,000 people for the kingdom of God as you just trust him and you follow him and watch what he can do through your life as you follow him. I mean, Jesus didn't need the fish. He didn't need the loaves. But Jesus still takes what they have to include them in his work to accomplish his mission. And I understand you might feel less than in some areas of your life or JV or inept and not enough, but it's enough. It really is. And Jesus wants you to participate in his story of redemption personally and also in his mission for others. 
You bring what you have, your mess, your doubts, your anxieties, your fears, your clumsiness, your tripping up, your past, and what you consider to be your, your disabilities or hindrances. And go ahead and tell God all the reasons why you don't feel you are worth his time. You give it all to him. And you trust him that he will do what he wants to do in you. And don't limit him. And you know what he's going to do? He'll blow you away with what he can do in your heart and through your life. And so you take courage, my dear brothers and sisters. Take courage. Regardless of what it is that you're facing, he sees he knows what you need. He feeds the hunger need within who you are, your true hunger, your search for identity and meaning and worth and peace and value. And he wants to comfort you through your need. And he wants you to know that he's taking care of what is your greatest need. Remember, they ate and they were satisfied. And the same can be true for you if you would be willing to take what he's given you. Thousands of people were satisfied as the disciples offered what they had. Imagine what God can do in you and through you. Believe Jesus. Even now, today, in this moment, as we approach the Lord's table, Christian, those who aren't Christians yet, believe Jesus. Believe that God became man in Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived and that he died the death that you should have died in your place. Believe that three days later, after his death on a cross, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he's the Son of God. Believe this. Believe that he offers the gift of salvation to all who believes and follow him as Lord and Savior. You believe this. My friend, this is the Christian message that you will not and cannot be truly satisfied apart from a true relationship with God, a relationship that's provided only through Jesus, the Messiah. You will never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never experience what your heart is longing for apart from going to Jesus. So friend, believe Jesus. By faith, believe him and experience him as friend. And be satisfied. Father, help the truths of this passage and its implications. Lord, help it impact our lives. Help it change our hearts. Help it motivate us to fight the drift in our sin. To not, as we prayed in our confession, make peace with our sin. Accommodate our sin. Lord, work in our hearts what's needed so that we can have greater faith and belief in you that you can do anything and that you care about everything in who we are and that you're with us even in moments of brokenness when we feel like you've left us. Give us faith to believe that you see and that you're aware and that you're near. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, to all who do believe and are believing, Let's together remember and celebrate Jesus through communion. Christian, this is for you, and I ask that you fight to keep this fresh, this moment. Don't drift through this moment. If you haven't engaged mentally, spiritually, emotionally yet in our gathering, do so right now as you come and take.
the bread and dip it into the juice or wine. These are two symbols that are symbolic of the mission, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who satisfies forever and always. The bread is symbolic of his life, and the juice or wine is symbolic of his death. He did this for you so that you could experience meaning and satisfaction in this life, and even more so in the life to come. He's brought you back to God, and you testify to this as you come take, dip, and taste. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel of Jesus as you come this morning. We've got servers on either side of the stage and a self-serve station in the back over here. You're welcome to come when you're ready. Christian, fight the drift here. Keep it fresh. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.